Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I've got three students with me today to talk about psychedelic use and treatment of substance use disorders. Let's do some introductions. Let's start with the almost stars of the show. Andrew, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name's uh, Andrew. I'm a third year medical student at uh, Rocky Vista and uh, I've been enjoying the rotation a lot so far. Had to think about that, didn't you? You've got a few more weeks before you're a fourth year medical student. Yeah, that's right. Got a, got a couple of requirements to check boxes on. And you've got an upcoming podcast. Let's plug that very quickly. You're going to do a podcast about? We're going to be doing a podcast about uh, specifically lavender, but essential oil treatment for anxiety and depression. And we're going to try and see if there's uh, data that is better than the yoga data we found in the past with Miles, right? That's right. That's right. All right. And Thomas? My name is Thomas Chandy. I'm a third year on the cusp of fourth year medical student doing my current third year elective here at the state hospital. Does that make you a fourth year student? I'm still on the cusp. Okay. <laughs> we'll take it. And uh, you have an upcoming podcast as well. Uh, do you want to plug that quickly? Yes, I'm doing a podcast on transcranial magnetic stimulation and its use in treatment-resistant depression. Yeah, I'm kind of excited to see that. We've, uh, we've got Eli coming back, who I think has been with us before. He's a, he's a student at Brigham Young University who will be joining us for that. And then the star of the show, Layla. My name is Layla. I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner student at Gonzaga University. Uh, I am also an SSRN here at the Utah State Hospital. What's an SSRN for people that don't know? A senior Staffing Registered Nurse. That still doesn't mean much to anybody, right? So, um, I take care of things after hours. I'm an administration when administration's not here. You are the administrator <laughs> when nobody else is here. Yep. Everything comes to you. Yeah. Now, you picked this topic on uh, psychedelics. Tell me a little bit about how you chose this topic. Um, well, to begin, there is a there is a major issue with substance use disorders um, and uh, the high rate of relapse um, and so I, I believe that sometimes we need to look backward in order to move forward um, psychedelics have been they've been used for thousands of years um, for various reasons and um, since substance use disorders um, are both a major issue in the medical as well as the psychiatric arena of health, um, and they're associated with cognitive, behavioral, and physiological symptoms, um, was looking at something that um, would incorporate uh, more of a, we might need to look at more alternative types of medicine since um, mainstream medicine doesn't, doesn't seem to be as effective as what we would like it to be. Yeah. There's some real challenges. I, I remember looking at one article. Uh, I think it was some uh, one of the articles making the case for psychedelic use. Mm -hmm. I think they were looking at the National National Drug Use Survey. What are the ND the mm -hmm. N the NSDUH? Right, and they said that essentially at any given time, there's about 30, 32 million people with uh, substance use disorder, alcohol mm -hmm. use disorder specifically, and that over the lifetime, even though that at any given time that's a point prevalence, a lifetime uh, accession of medical help is remarkably low, right? 20% uh, of people? I know I have this number somewhere, but a surprisingly small number of people actually seek out treatment. And then when they do, um, most people that have serious 
substance use disorder, the vast majority of those relapse. So our tools for those that actually seek out treatment are uh, effective only a small portion of the time. So there's this very big unmet need. Mm -hmm. And uh, so initially you looked at talking about just one substance. So I initially looked at uh, peyote uh, in um, specifically for alcohol use disorder, but um, I came across it, it. I was having a hard time finding um, research on specifically peyote in alcohol use disorder. Um, but I did come across um, studies that have been done on other psychedelics in other forms of uh, substance use disorder, such as um, opioid, cocaine. Uh, even tobacco, um, which has shown promising, um, some promising results towards um, treatment effect, treatment benefit, effect. yeah. Now, I thought that there was probably some interest in looking at peyote specifically uh, for other reasons. There is an association with peyote and um, our Native American culture, mm -hmm. and I thought that that might have some interest for you. Yes, um, so um, I am, I am or I'm mixed. I'm indigenous uh, Tuscarora uh, Cherokee, uh, which is the Six Nation Iroquois Confederacy. Um, and so, growing up, um, there's always been um, an openness towards more what's considered more natural or holistic forms of medicine. Um, and so that's, that's another reason why I was looking at alternative forms. Um, just, I believe that, um, the more, the more tools that we have in our healing bag, the better, the greater the potential for, um, the better, uh, excuse me. Better outcomes. Better outcomes. Yes, yeah. yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. So. Now, I, I want to focus on, uh, one other aspect of this, and that is the American Indian Religious Freedom Act amendments of 1994, mm -hmm. which made it legal to use peyote. peyote. Uh, and in, in Native American tribes, <clears throat> excuse me, and in the Native American church. Mm -hmm. Although uh, only a small portion of uh, people who are eligible to use the substance actually do associated mm -hmm. with either the tribe or the religious affiliation. It seems like that's the case. Mm -hmm. and, and that seems to be one of the uh, one of the first instances where psychedelics opened up back at, back up after the 70s. Mm -hmm. Now I want to talk about first of all what are the psychedelics that we're going to kind of just look at and then second after we talk about that I want to talk a little bit about um, this change that happened um, pre-1970s and then starting in the mid-90s where, where we had stopped and then started uh, looking at those again. So, so if you wouldn't mind, introduce us to the psychedelics. So the psychedelics that, we're, um, that we'll be discussing is the um, mescaline, um, DMT, um, silo, psilocybin. Psilocybin. <laughs> so we actually... Um, for anybody that's curious, you can go online, type in uh, the name of any of these substances, and then type pronunciation, and Google will provide a pronunciation uh, guide for you. You can actually hear the sound. And I think I've constantly or consistently said psilocybin, but it's uh, but it's psilocybin. Yeah, there's 
Yeah. So anyway, it, we're, we're going to say psilocybin a number of different ways and mescaline a number of different ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, please don't get hung up on the myriad of pronunciations amongst us all. Um, and then the last one, uh, LSD. Yeah, there's also one other one that's hanging out there called 2CB that's mentioned at times, but that's not one that we'll discuss in in our uh, conversation. And the other thing that I want to add as well is that peyote is the cactus form of mescaline, and mescaline is the is the purified or the active metabolite. So you might eat a couple of different kinds of cactus um, that would give you that meta- that mescaline, and then you can also find psilocybin, uh, psilocybin in uh, some 200 or so fungi. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, um, interesting stuff. I'll also add one other thing that I thought was interesting. Um, LSD, I was reading about the discovery of that and apparently there was a fellow, let me see if I can find his name. Um, Somebody who had hydrolysis of ergotamine some guy was playing around with it. And Albert he, Hoffman in 1938. And he accidentally ingested some, mm-hmm. right? And he had this uh, really unique experience. And so we have uh, Hoffman in 38. We had, uh, let's see, the guy who, who identified mescaline, I think he identified it, well, after it had been identified for thousands mm-hmm. and thousands of years by Native mm-hmm. Americans, was identified by a chemist in uh, 96, 1896, 1898, something A German... Um, Trying to remember what his name. Yeah, Hefner, Hefter, Hefner, something along those lines, and then of course uh, LSD we talked about, and uh, DMT is a little more recent. Uh, ayahuasca is another plant that's out there. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to talk about that quite as much as we are some of the others. So w- there was this huge interest um, in uh, psychedelics prior to the 70s. Mm-hmm. A lot of interest. And then it stopped suddenly. Mm-hmm. Tell me why it stopped. Um, well, um, a number of uh, people accredited to the Controlled Substance Act that was passed, um, which labeled um, psychedelics as a uh, class one that um, substance that has no medicinal value to it. Um, highly addictive. Um, I'm trying to remember the other parts. There's like seven or eight different parts, has tolerance, uh, used in increasing amounts. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, those criteria strongly overlap the substance use disorder criteria. Mm -hmm. Why don't we actually jump over to Andrew for just a second. And Andrew, you prepared, um, you, you have kind of a thumbnail of the criteria that are involved in alcohol use disorder. And they're very similar to the other use disorders. Uh, we think that some of the better data that we looked at might re- uh, relate to use of psychedelic treatments in alcohol use disorder. So why don't you go ahead and give us the criteria for the alcohol use disorder? Yeah, so it looks like in the new DSM-5, um, it's required to have two out of 11 criteria that they have listed in a 12-month time frame in order to meet the alcohol use disorder. I kind of sum those up. Um, these people start to have everything in their life revol- revolve around alcohol, whether it's their goals or daily activities, and they often drink more or longer than they originally intend to. A lot of them start to develop this desire to decrease the amount of alcohol they're consuming, but just can't seem to really put that into action. Uh, I think part of that leads to an increased tolerance of alcohol over time, and as that happens, 
uh, you see impairment in function in life, whether it's activities like getting to work or activities like in being involved socially with other people that they're just um, not able to stop and continue to use despite that. Uh, they can develop cravings and uh, kind of a physiologic dependence where they get those withdrawal symptoms if they stop consuming the alcohol. And I, I think one of the, the real telltale signs that I think we see in the news very often is when they become dangerous, where they do hazardous things such as drinking and driving or can affect their health. So somebody has liver disease and keeps drinking despite that. Exactly. So I think uh, for me, there, there used to be a distinction between alcohol use disorder, uh, like a abuse and dependence, and it kind of revolved around physiological tolerance. That seems to have gone away now in the current DSM. Really all we're focused on is, are you drinking so much that it's getting in the way of your health and safety and you can't stop, right? Yeah, That's, that basically sums it up really nicely in one line. Good. So let's go ahead and go back to uh, psychedelics. I know that uh, we had a podcast, I want to say, that was with Rhett a number of years ago. I think you listened to that. Mm -hmm. We talked about how uh, President Nixon, um, who, who appears to have been using stimulants at the time, mm -hmm. kind of rolled up all of these drugs into one thing. One of the challenges that uh, psychedelics had was that some of the people that were doing some of the most notable studies with psychedelics were busy using psychedelics and it seemed to impair the credibility. Um, I think there was a researcher in one of the uh, universities in uh, Boston that might have got in a little bit of trouble for using um, acid or LSD at the time. So, so we have this, um, some case reports of people becoming psychotic, we have some case reports of bad trips where people become aggressive, and we don't have any data that it's a medication that can actually help people. So this is the criteria that I think you're speaking to, right? The, the uh, CSA criteria, the, the uh, <laughs> Controlled Substance Act, right, where you have to have a medical need and then you have to avoid the tolerance, you have to avoid the tolerability problems, you have to avoid the misuse, the repetitive use, and the, the situation where it creates danger. And with these case reports of psychosis, the case reports of danger, we don't have that. So it gets wrapped up into the CSA. Yet, 25 years later, here we, here we are in 1995, and now 30 years after that, almost 2025, tell me how these things made a comeback. Um, well, um, I think with people, again, just being, um, being frustrated with um, some of the, the medication that is out there um, and wanting to be um, just being more uh, open to other forms of um, treatment or medicine. Uh, in addition, you had mentioned something um, that um, in some of my reading that I've come across about enlightened or uh, significant, what they call heightened positive spiritual experiences, mm -hmm. which has added to um, I, I, I believe it's added to the, the interest in looking at psychedelics as a form of treatment. Yeah, there's this really interesting concept, and I think we also discussed this with Rhett just a little bit. The idea is, do you have treatment that is a psychedelic experience? And then there's another word, psych... Uh, in any case, one of the experiences is lower-dose psychedelics with 
um, assisted therapy, mm -hmm. and then there's a higher dose. And a lot of the studies that we looked at tried to assess this question of what is it that mediates the change in the person? And this change, it seems like a lot of the literature refers back to something that uh, two authors, Miller and C apostrophe lowercase d lowercase e, Becca, so Miller Sidebecca, I assume is how you say that, back in 2001, talked about a quantum change. I also remember I was very impacted uh, in the podcast with Rhett where we talked about PTSD. The idea was you can have an event so meaningful that it permanently negatively affects your life. And the idea with psychedelics, and I think this is what you're speaking to, Layla, is you can have an experience that is so positive that it universally changes your life. It changes your relationship with substances. It changes your relationship with the people that are important to you. It changes your relationship with your job. All of the articles that we looked at that involved original research, they were trying to look at what is it that mediates this change. And I think the whole goal is to try and figure out, do you need to have psychedelic-assisted therapy, PAT, or do you just need to have this uh, high-dose psychedelic experience where mysticism and quantum change are involved? And, and maybe quantum change comes with either of those, but I think it's, I think it's still an open question based on my reading of the literature. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you had any other thoughts about that. No, I, well, I'm thinking along the same lines. Same thing. Um, and I think that there, um, from, from the reading as well, that there's a, um, encouragement and promotion of more clinical studies on the use of um, psychedelics in treating the different forms of substance use disorders. Oh yeah. Um, and then just even from the studies, going over the studies, um, there seems to be, from the positives, uh, the relapse rates are significantly lower. Um, they, people that have uh, reported that they have less severe withdrawal symptoms after using um, even one dose of the uh, psychedelic um, with whatever substance they're um, having issues with. Um, they um, reported having um, reduced stress associated with quitting, improving their own uh, personal meaning. Um, in addition, that they've had a positive perspective change um, towards their future, life, priorities, values. Um, in addition with um, increased confidence in abstaining from the, the substance that they were previously um, had issues with. Yeah, I remember reading some of those statements about the, that were made in some of the uh, articles we're reading, right? Mm -hmm people had these statements that were profound about the way that the experience changed their life, mm -hmm. right? So, so it, it, it does correlate, um, it does, um, I guess, support the... The, the quantum change, the, quantum the mysticism change. kind of thing. It seems like a lot of the data leans that way. But, but we're gonna talk about some authors, uh, let's see, who is it, in a few minutes, Bogenschutz, I think, who, who gave us a model for uh, psilocybin-assisted therapy. We're gonna get to that in just a few minutes, though. Um, I wanna take a, a break from what we're talking about. We had an interesting question that came up. So you mentioned how many new studies are out there looking at this. So I went to the Cochrane database to look for randomized controlled trials that said, here's what the conglomeration of data is showing us with regards to either 
uh, psilocybin, uh, mescaline, um, LSD, DMT. I think I looked at all of the psychedelics individually, mm-hmm. found nothing that was, uh, was a Cochrane review. So there's not enough data out there yet to really put together a Cochrane review. But what I did find, and something I hadn't noticed before in, in the Cochrane database, is you can see how many registered trials there are with these substances. So when I looked at registered trials for, um, for like, uh, uh, I think it was mescaline, there was a dozen or so. With LSD, I want to say it was 200. And then... I think maybe it was psilocybin who had 200, but the, there's just this incredible number of studies now. Let's see, 225 on trials.gov with uh, psilocybin, uh, 16 with mescaline, and one trial with DMT. I didn't look at the LSD trials, um, which I'm sure are very, very high. Uh, so, so there's a lot of trials going on now. Now, I, I think all of us had this question. How do you have trials with a substance that is... Uh, forbidden to use, right? It's mm-hmm. Schedule 1. So, I, Thomas, you looked that up. Yes, I did. <clears throat> so, what I found in my research about uh, these new trials for Schedule 1 substances, and Schedule 1 uh, substances are ones that were are deemed to be chemicals defined as drugs with no currently accepted medical use and high potential for abuse. Those include heroin, LSD, marijuana, uh, ecstasy, and peyote. Um, what I found it was that the FDA has approved breakthrough uses for um, the use of these type of Schedule One substances. Um, in the case of psilocybin, the well, it's one of the first groups to have a, a approval for psilocybin use was Johns Hopkins University in 2000. And the initial research came uh, from grants, um, and they've raised $17 million to build a center for psychedelic and consciousness research. So um, the FDA, you know, basically looks at these these new therapies for safety, and or looks at all uh, therapies for safety, and they've found that there's a potential for these type of psychedelics to be used in the in new therapies for substance use, for depression, for other other um, other uses that PTSD, are PTSD, substance yeah. use, the things we're talking about here. Yeah. So so you can get breakthrough designation even if it is Schedule One. Yes. Okay. So so I think the other thing that was happening, and it, I I think we're seeing some of this in other places. I think there were uh, medical tourism. Right, we're seeing people who are looking for compassionate care. I think there was some openings for use, especially with cancer treatment. So, mm-hmm. one of the meta-analysis we did find, even though it wasn't a Cochrane meta-analysis, said that there's at least some growing evidence that use in um, terminal cancer settings has some benefit in treatment of anxiety and depressive symptoms. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so I think that's some of the early places this was used, and now it's moving into other domains. There were compassionate use uh, designations provided in some European countries. I think there's some Caribbean travel where you can go and get this used as well. Um, and so there, there were a number of areas already opening up. I think one of the articles we looked at talked about Oregon having opened up use, and it's still too early to kind of see how that's going to play out. And as we were talking about it this morning, when uh, Mike Johnson, one of the 
team members, he's a nurse practitioner on our team, said that it looks like uh, Utah has opened up a committee to now explore the possibility of medical use of uh, psychedelic treatments. So, so I think that the states and the feds are, are opening this up and uh, kind of seeing where this will go. Now, I want to now now that we've talked a little bit about how did it open up, how how did we start making the change? I think there's uh, there was a lot of fear associated with a lot of different substances. Uh, maybe we should have been more uh, likely to lock up more opiates, right? We right. we clearly had some problems with that. Uh, stimulants remain problematic. That might have been a good call, um, but there's growing data that there might be a use for. Um, for these psychedelics. We're going to talk a little bit more about some of the risks associated with those later. But what I'd like to do is talk about the kinds of studies that, that we found that tried to make the, the argument that uh, psychedelic medications are safe. Now, there are a couple of different ways that they did this. One of the ways that this was done is there was a, I think it was Johnson did most of these. And what they did is they went into the database. We've talked about this database in, in a previous discussion is the uh, N NSDUH, National, National <laughs> where is it? We have so many different pages. We have so many things we read that we're having a tough time finding all the answers here. Um, survey of Drug Use and Health. National Survey of Drug Use and Health. Now this is a survey that's done I want to say every five or ten years. It's a large survey. The one that was done between, I want to say, 2015 and 2019 uh, had over 230,000 people involved. If I understand correctly, they go into the house. They have people uh, sign on to tablets and then fill out a standardized set of forms. And I want to say that it was uh, Johnson and his group that then went and looked at all of these, uh, looked at this data, and then said, all right, now that we've looked at this data, all of the, I guess it's about 215,000 participants, of those that, that said, yes, I have lifetime use of peyote, or yes, I have lifetime use of mescaline, or yes, I have lifetime use of LSD, what happens with other substances? And, and I, I'm kind of under the impression that they cherry-picked just a little bit, but they found some data on three different things, cocaine, opiates, and uh, depression. So those are the, the, actually those are the Jones articles, not the Johnson articles. Do you want to just kind of review those a little bit, Layla? I know I'm pulling you out of sequence, uh, or if you want me to just comment on those briefly, because I think you have some comments elsewhere. Um, How do you want to tackle that? Um, if you would like to comment, and then I can jump okay. in. So, so three articles. I didn't. I didn't love these. I. I think because it's not prospective data, but it's it's data that you can take on the value of what it is. So this is open data that everybody has access to. It's de-identified. So uh, uh, Jones and his group didn't even really have to get IRB approval. And what they did is they said, okay, if we look at uh, cocaine use and any of the psychedelics, is there any evidence that the psychedelics will reduce cocaine use? Well, the answer is potentially peyote slash mescaline would reduce cocaine use, right? And so they said, hey, there might be something to look at here. Um, the second study they looked at said, can it change opiate use? 
And uh, it looks like that psilocybin, uh, if you have a lifetime use of psilocybin, you might use less opiates. And then they looked at MDMA and said, if you have depression, maybe MDMA reduces that. It felt like this was a fishing experiment to see what the data might show. I, I'm not enthralled with it. The other challenge with the data is that um, amongst all the associations that they looked at, I, I couldn't see, at least within the article where I was looking at, how they accounted like with a Bonferroni correction for all of the different variables they were looking at. Um, so, so there's this kind of data where they try and look through available data to see for see associations. Again, I'm not overwhelmed by this data, but it's data that that people who are making the case for safety are saying, "Hey, there, it's there." Now, this data was also used to say that there's not risk as well. I think there's some more compelling data for risk. There was a article that we looked at by Johnson in 2018 mm -hmm. who went over the eight factors that you have to address for a controlled substance to get that change from Schedule 1. And I think there were some things that they mentioned that were a lot more compelling. For example, there's something called TEDS, which is Treatment Episode Data Set, which looks at actual admissions to hospitals. Mm -hmm. And in terms of psychedelics, it's rarely a cause for admissions into hospitals. If you look at something called DONS, which is Drug Abuse Warning Network, this is ED visits. Again, psychedelics very rarely uh, cause uh, emergency room uh, visits. The NSDUH data that we've talked about a little bit harder to sift through. Um, again, not compelling for continual use, which is the criteria we talked about in uh, alcohol use disorder, right? It, it doesn't have the tolerance, it doesn't have the dependence kinds of things that seem to show up with the other substances. There's something else called mon MTF, which is monitoring the future. This is a survey of secondary and college schools and what they look at is use among that group and psilocybin doesn't show up in the way that's problematic like some of the others. There's another thing called the National Forensics Lab and we've talked about this before as well where things that are confiscated by uh, the various law enforcement agencies are checked for what's actually in the substances and rarely does, uh, does the psychedelics show up in those. And then lastly, and maybe one of the ones that's most compelling, how often do you see the poison control center issue uh, deaths related to uh, psychedelic use, and that's also surprisingly infrequently. So there's, I think there's other areas to look at for risk of this being problematic like some of the others, and I, I wasn't as compelled with the uh, NSDUH data. Um, tell me, uh, I think now that I've kind of reviewed that, did you have some thoughts about that data set, Layla? Well, um, I think some, well, because of the, the FDA, um, there's not been as many studies um, as with other types of medications. Um, I think it's plausible that some of the information or the safety warnings that they have, um, um, for example, um, if you go into the DSM-5 and you look at what, um, um, hold on a moment, um, if you look at what the criteria is for dependence, um, many of the the diagnostic criteria for dependence does not fit within the for hallucin or hallucinogenic substances psych like psychedelics. Um, the withdrawal symptoms and signs are also not established for hallucinogens because there's not the the um, 
Clinical just not the withdrawal yeah. syndrome. Yeah, I think that was one of the other things that that I think a, a huge point was made about is w you don't have physiological dependence. Mm -hmm. There's also something else that's interesting about this, and I'm not sure I, I fully understood mm -hmm. it. Y y there's not a tolerance issue either. In other words, y y you don't take more and have a different effect. Right. right. You don't increase that amount and have something different happen. It's right. always kind of the same. Mm -hmm. The only thing that does seem to change with escalation of the dose is the problematic side effects like right. hypertension, maybe psychosis, maybe bad trips. I, I did think that Jones did a pretty good job on their, um, on their description in the uh, NSDUH survey in the first one. And, and they said that that was the peyote association with cocaine use. And one of the comments it made, which I think is pretty important for a lot of these articles that we're talking about, because a lot of them, there's kind of some challenges in the way that they're recruiting or where they're getting their information, yeah. right? So in this group, they said, hey, listen, we can't, from the data we have, we can't assess whether somebody had a bad trip, whether somebody has a persisting hallucinogen, hallucinogen I'm sorry, a hallucinogen persisting perceptual disorder or a hallucinogen use disorder where it would interfere with function, those kinds of things. And we can't assess psychotic disorders. Because it wasn't done in a, in a closed setting. Or, or, or in, even in a way where they could pick those things setting, up. Yeah. Right, yeah. Now, there was another set of studies I'd like you to comment on, if you would. And I think this is the, like the tobacco study, um, a couple of others, where they there were two different kinds of studies done. There were some pilot studies done. I'm not I'm going to mm -hmm. not get to those yet. Okay. But there were, all, there were some uh, recruiting studies done. We want to get people's experiences using the drug. So they did this really interesting thing. They would um, recruit through Facebook and through a couple of different websites. For example, uh, this one was kind of interesting to me, Shroomery. Mm -hmm. Did you read about Shroomery? <laughs> Shroomery.com. Now, yeah, Shroomery.com. Now, interestingly, and in, in Facebook, so they would advertise on Shroomery.com or .org and Facebook. Now, I typed, I went to my computer, of course, and immediately looked up uh, Shroomy rather than Shroomery. And uh, apparently, Mary Jane Domains already has that domain locked down, and they're willing to sell it to me if I'm interested in selling. And then they listed a number of substances cannabis, uh, opiates, um, uh, psychedelics of various flavors, and so forth. So, so there's a, obviously a, a web presence for these things, and uh, these websites um, seem a little intriguing to me. I'll, I'll leave it in intriguing. Maybe sketchy is, is another word, but they advertised on these sites and uh, got a bunch of people who came forward and then reported on their experience, right? And based on the reports of the experiences, they tried to draw some conclusions. And Layla, um, I don't know if you want to, actually what I want to do instead is instead of talking about those, okay. I mean, I'm just going to also comment on the pilot studies. So these, after they had the data from like you know, all the safety data, right? We're not seeing people harmed by this. Mm -hmm. There's tolerance data, there's withdrawal data. There's all sorts of answers to the risks about schedule one that we've, we've talked about, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then they started doing some small pilot studies. These are uh, low number studies, 10, 15 people, right? And uh, not a lot of people in these pilot studies. And, and I think I'll stop there with my 
general criticism of the studies overall, right? Mm -hmm. There are there are are some studies that are emerging, but generally speaking, the data we have is mostly along these lines. With that in mind, talk to me about. Uh, let, let's go ahead and go to the substance use disorders. Kind of, you, you have sort of a like an outline that you have starting on the four sub point, and I kind of want you to just go ahead and go down that and talk to me now that we've kind of talked about the types of studies that have been done, the way that the data has been looked at. Talk to me kind of about the different ways that these substances are used. Okay. And, and what you found. So. Um, in one of the studies, and I'm, I know I'm going to mispronounce his name. Um, Bogenschutz? Bogenschutz. Yeah. Um, he had done, uh, he specifically looked at psilocybin in the treatment of alcohol use disorder. Um, and in that, um, again, I, even though these studies, they're, um, the, the group is small, the participant, the, I mean, there's a lot of things lacking with the studies themselves. I still see it as a positive because it's it's the initial start into looking at at um, the use of psychedelics in as a treatment option. Um, but it, to get back to his particular study, um, one of the things that um, he was able to, or that he spoke about was um, how the psychedelics um, change the brain networking, the brain functioning and networks, um, specifically with the... Um, Default mode network, there was some disruption yeah. of that. Yeah, mm -hmm. they talk about that a little bit. Um, maybe some downregulation of 5-HT2A, right. maybe some changes in BDNF, which is neurotrophic-derived... Uh, um, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, maybe GDF, GDNF changes, right? And so with with that, because they also um, are associated with, um, oh, excuse me, lost my place. <laughs> um, they're also associated with um, just the parts of the brain that um, are associated with addiction. Um, they've noticed that it with the downregulation that um, it, could pro it could possibly alter or diminish um, stress-induced relapse, which I found was, I mean, stress, anxiety, um, that is, people list that or, or state that as, um, as a factor in relapsing. Um, I think that was also a factor why um, they felt like psychedelics were not uh, inducing dependences because you didn't necessarily reach for those when you felt distress and afterwards you didn't have that anxiety. I, I read that portion three or four times trying to, tr trying to understand what it meant. I, I really struggled with that. One of the things I thought was really fascinating about the Bogenschutz article, so this is, uh, this is a group that I think is answering one of the questions associated with how do we transition 
use of psilocybin and other psychedelics into the community, right? So mm -hmm. Layla, one of the things that you would be considering doing as a nurse practitioner is mm -hmm. providing psychedelic therapy to patients. Mm -hmm. How do you do that, right? It, it's not like the traditional models, it's very different. It's not mm -hmm. that you hand somebody a pill and say, hey, good job, we'll uh, check in with me in two weeks or four weeks, it's very different. And I think the Bogenschutz article does a good job of describing that process. Well, I think um, as, as a future nurse practitioner, um, I believe that um, part of the healing journey, uh, there's a, a key factor in it, and that's the uh, guidance from, um, from a trained provider. Um, so, so I think some of the limitations with, um, with the negatives associated with hallucinogenics is that, again, it's not in a controlled um, setting and it's not done with, it's, it's done more for recreational purposes or um, without a guidance of someone who's trained. Yeah. Um, and a big portion, I mean, some of these um, studies um, spoke about um, having met or motivational um, Motivational interview, motivational enhancement therapy right. combined with taking action. So, um, so I think Bogan Schutz called it meta, meta long before it was taken by Mr. Zuckerberg. So, um, uh, in addition to that, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, also, with CBT, so there's a, there's a psycho um, therapeutic uh, um, addition to. Um, what some of these um, studies are um, encouraging or promoting. So it's not just the use of the psychedelics, it's also that um, component with a trained, trained therapist. Yeah. So Bogenschutz, I think, describes this in an interesting way, right? They say, hey, the, 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 the risks are that you have to screen people appropriately. Mm -hmm. So from their perspective, they, if, if I understand correctly, they wouldn't allow somebody that has a family history of psychosis right. to participate in the use of mescaline or uh, psilocybin. Mm -hmm. the, the other thing that they talk about is you have to have a lead up to that. You have two therapy sessions, if I remember correctly, before you get psilocybin, mm -hmm. where you talk about what the expectations uh, or what, what the therapy is like, what you can expect. You might have a a bad trip. It might be mm -hmm. a lot of fear. Fear seems to be something that shows up quite often, right? It can be a lot of these things. And then the second therapy session is more about, uh, I think there's also, um, and I'm probably mixing these two up now. I'm pretty sure I am. The other component of the two sessions is we need to know what your goals are. What are you hoping? What are your relationships with your, with your job, with the substance you're misusing, with the people around you? And, and what do those things mean to you? Who are you? Mm -hmm. And then after those two sessions, you actually come back for a third session, which is with two therapists, both a male and a female. Mm -hmm. You put something over your eyes to cover them up, and then you listen to music with headphones over your ears. It's not earbuds, it's headphones. Um, I, I looked for an Apple earbud comment in there, but it was just earphones. Um, and then you're watched, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, there's a debriefing session after that that seems to be important. Mm -hmm. And the goal is trying to assess the relationship that you now have with uh, with 
the different things that are important in your life, right? And, and again, that's part of the psilocybin-assisted therapy or the psychedelic-assisted therapy, um, that, that relationship exploration. And then you come back for a few more sessions after that. Now, there's some mm-hmm. questions that weren't as clear to me. How long do you need the, the male and female therapist? It seems that the male and female therapist can provide alternate roles if it, it ends up being what's called a bad trip, mm-hmm. maybe help that be a better trip, and then whether that continues to uh, be necessary, like you might have in group therapy or not, is something that's not as clear. And I think they even made the case that that's, that's not as clear. So so this process, you you build up to the ingestion, you have the ingestion, then you have therapy, then you have a debriefing, then you have therapy sessions after. This is a very prescribed way of doing this. And it seems to be the way, uh, I think when Rhett and his group did this podcast in the past, we didn't have an article that described this process. Instead, we had a, I think it was like an article out of the Atlantic that described how somebody went through the process of having it happen to them. And I think they were I think the study for that person was in New Mexico, and I don't know that we've seen data from that yet. So, so I thought it was really interesting how they go about the process, right? There has to be two people there. It has to be very carefully monitored. They, they even say that you need a physician, potentially as one of those people, or access to a physician so that if blood pressure becomes problematic, you can treat the blood pressure. Even though I'm not sure that I find a lot of data that blood pressure gets dangerous with any of these substances. You had comments. Well, I just, some of the questions that came to my mind with with that is, um, and it doesn't specify in, in, in the study, in the article, is if he, if they were designing it, um, so with, with the indigenous um, use or the indigenous um, use of, for example, the peyote, there is a, a way that they, with, with the medicine man, um, to go about um, taking it. And so that's why I'm wondering, um, I would like to know with the re- how he came about um, this, process. this process, if he was aligning yeah. it along the lines of, or taking ideas or inspiration from the way that the tribes go ahead and, you know, for different ceremonies, um, use the the peyote and so i wish that that would have been something that you know he they would described have. where it came from so it's interesting so. because i i think that uh when i was an adolescent and we talked about um psychedelics right the street knowledge was you needed a sherpa to guide you through that first trip mm-hmm. right and and in college um i had uh, peers who who or, or people that I knew that were dropping acid, I think was the phrase that was used at the time, right? And and there was some discussion in that culture about having somebody with you. So I think that's a long-standing pattern to have somebody with you with the with the trips. One, where they came to this protocol, though, is not as clear to me, and I don't remember seeing a reference to an established protocol that's already being used. I don't know if this mm-hmm. speaks back to the protocols that were developed in the 1960s when during the early heydays of, right. of psychedelic research. One of the other things that I think stands out to me with regards to uh, these studies, when, when I, one of, all of the articles we read, right, there's not a lot of people that say, gosh, psychedelics suck, we shouldn't be looking at those at all. There's not a lot of people that have a lot of research mm-hmm. going on disputing this data, right? There's, this is all funded by people that seem to have invested interests in, in promoting psychedelics. 
that's no different than pharmaceutical companies in my mind that promote pharmaceuticals, right? But there, but there's a huge interest in 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 making this happen, whether it's to be monetized later or whether it's uh, truly to make the world a better place. I don't know the motives of people, um, but but this seems to be a very expensive therapy because it looks like it's at least a day long. You have to have at least a physician there. There are two people watching it. There's some breaks during the during it where you check in. Um, but but I think one of the things that was really interesting in the data that is, hey, this is good stuff, trust us, w one of the comments that was made was even a bad trip has a good outcome. Mm -hmm. So so there are a couple of comments. Some of the, some of the um, assessment measures ask a question along the lines of your best trip, how does it rank among your lifetime best experiences? And repeatedly this was like a top five of my best experiences ever kind of mm -hmm. response right and yet the flip side of that and I only saw this in one article was where does a bad trip sit in your worst experiences mm -hmm. and the answer was top 10 worst experiences right it, it sits at, at the top of these terrible experiences and yet even with those terrible experiences the outcomes are commonly positive. I think I did a, an NNT on on what uh, you know, the number of people that would have to have uh, to participate in the therapy and to have a bad trip and have it be a negative outcome. I think the number was like 16 or 17, and that's a fairly high NNH number needed to harm. Well, well, even with that, that's with any medication. There's not everyone is going to respond the same way. Right, so and and I th and I think that's I mean I think that's the point. Our NNH is for a lot of other mm -hmm. things like uh, the number needed for sexual dysfunction with SSRIs is mm -hmm. is very low. Right, you only need to treat a handful of patients before right. you start having sexual dysfunction as a side effect. Okay. Uh, the risk of suicidality. I'm not sure that I can uh, come up with the NNH off my off the top of my head, but that's a consequence of using. Uh, SSRIs, right? We have limitations in all of our treatments, and just kind of being aware that that an NNH of 17 is actually a pretty remarkable outcome, I think. And I think too, again, I know that there's limitations to the studies we found, but um, with with medication, um, I can see the the potential with if you are only having to do this once or twice as compared to taking medication on a daily basis, which one is more likely? I mean, the more times that a medication is prescribed and that you're needing to take it, the higher the risk of non-adherence, which also can lead to, um, you know, the worsening of the condition um, that the individual has. Whereas with the psychedelics, um, it appears that it's one or two times and it has a long residual effect um, overall on the condition, whether it's um, with tobacco cessation or alcohol use disorder or opioid use disorder, it seems to have a, a longer effect just from that one Just one from the time. one event, yeah. So even looking at it over uh, in an aspect like that, even though it may be expensive that one day. It might have value well beyond. I think that's really important to point out. I think the other thing that's important to point out is that the Controlled Substance Act doesn't just say what's the risk of this substance. It weighs that risk against the risk of the condition that's being treated too, right? So so I think that's where some of this, where I, I think a, a lot of the people that are writing about this are trying to make the case that it's worthwhile to pursue. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's not... Uh, 
that, that I think is still a little bit concerning to me and I don't know how to weigh this out myself. Uh, Schlag did a review of the safety data. Um, their comment I put in green quotations. They're, they're the people that said a bad trip is okay, mm -hmm. right? Um, they said that the vast majority of users do not proceed to hallucinogen use disorder. Now that's the kind of language that I remember hearing in medical school about opiates. If you use opiates to treat pain, people don't proceed to hallucinogen use disorder. And yet here we are with a lot of people with hallucinogen use disorder. Perhaps this is better data than what we had. We were relying on uh, editorial data back then and I think there's some fairly reasonable data that uh, Schlag cited when talking about um, the actual risk of hallucinogen use disorder. They, they uh, cited the SAMHSA which says that it's the bottom of the risk of the list for risk with um, dependency. Um, SAMHSA says maybe 9% of the people would develop uh, hallucinogen use disorder, but he cites uh, somebody named Kendler. We didn't find this study. We're only 0.2% of people who use hallucinogens end up with a hallucinogen use disorder. And uh, um, they, they make the case that it's not uh, universally euphoric and that tolerance doesn't isn't an issue, that there's not escalating doses as part of the safety. And so, so I think one of the questions that would be really uh, nice to know is if we do expand use, if hallucinogens do make it into the community, what does it mean to have somewhere between 5 and 10% of the population develop hallucinogen use disorder? And how does that compare to the populations that are being treated for nicotine use disorders with uh, alcohol use disorders and so forth? And those are, are very difficult questions. Mm -hmm. And I think perhaps one of the things that persuades me to consider this more strongly, that it's probably reasonable to move forward is that if you put uh, rats in a cage and they keep tapping the button so that they can get amphetamines, if they keep tapping, tapping the button so they can get opioids, and they don't keep tapping the button to get hallucinogens or psychedelics more specifically, that might say something, right? I think, uh, I think the Schlag article also made the distinction between uh, fencyclidine, PCP, which mm -hmm. is a hallucinogen, and the psychedelics, which largely act on the 5-HT2A receptor, in that the rats will keep tapping uh, for yeah. the for the um, PCP, but not for the psych. Excuse me, not for the psychedelics. Um, and if people have a bad trip, I think you're also making the case that there's a surprising number of people, somewhere around 10, 11 percent, who become um, violent or have desires to be violent. I'm not sure they actually become violent. Um, this was some of the online data that they collected through, you know, Facebook, whatever. Um, some, you know, 10% of this population says, I had these violent thoughts. We don't actually know how many people act on those. That's kind of an issue that's not quite well established yet But then either. I think, too, just be, um, there's the limitation as well that is it, are they accurately reporting if there's under, any underlying issues that... Right. Um, yeah, whether there was a, a history of schizophrenia, mm -hmm. that seems to be maybe one of the yeah. issues where that might pop up more. So. Good point. Um, talk to me about tobacco. Tell me about tobacco use. I don't think we've talked about that. We've talked about alcohol a little bit. We've talked about uh, early studies. So um, I came across um, a, a, well, a pilot study that was conducted by Johnson um, Matthew Johnson and um, Albert Garcia Romu and Roland Griffiths and 
what was interesting about the pilot study is that they conducted a long-term follow-up um, on psilocybin facilitated smoking cessation. So what, what interested me is that they, with the pilot study, um, they were able to come back so that we can see what the effects would be several years after the, our, um, a, a good amount of time after the pilot study was conducted. Um, but within it, um, it was interesting that um, that there was it promoted um, long-term smoking abstinence, um, and that um, it just I, I felt like the study um, showed that this could be um, promising again towards another substance use disorder like nicotine, even though nicotine is legal, because um, we've been talking, um, you know, with cocaine and some of the other... Um, alcohol is legal too, though. Yeah. Alcohol is legal too, so regardless if it's legal or illegal, there's still an issue with um, use and misuse of substances. And so I felt that um, just reading through with um, the study, um, again, the pilot study was, um, they, they followed up a year later, and um, it, a year to 16 months later was... Um, with the same patients. With the same patients, and that um, 86, um, th from their calculations, 86.7%, 60 percent um, were confirmed smoking abstinent, where an 86.7 um, also described it that the psilocybin experience was among the, the five most personally, personally meaningful and spiritual significant experiences of their lives. Yeah. So. Um, Back to that quantum experience. Yeah. yeah. I, I just found that the, I, I enjoyed um, but finding that they had a follow-up study. Yeah. Um, so, so there were a couple of studies. Um, so this is Johnson. Johnson mm -hmm. is the same group. This is the same group of people that looked at the uh, NSDUH data, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think even though th this is a study of 15 people, it's open label, lots of limitations on this study, mm -hmm. right? Right. And I think one of the things that makes this more compelling as a pilot study is the description that they talk about where people commented that they fundamentally changed their relationship with tobacco, right? right. They no longer thought about quitting tobacco, or no, they, they no longer thought about smoking. How did, they said something very interesting. Do you remember the way that was um, phrased? It, it, was a, it was a flip in the mindset as opposed to, the way I understood it was instead of continuing to worry about stopping smoking, they thought about, or I don't even remember how it was stated. Um, if you see. find that, I'd be interested in hearing it again. I think they said they no longer thought about smoking and instead were able to think about not smoking. Maybe that was the way it was worded. But it was a, but it was a paradigm shift, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that was one of the things that kept coming up over and over and over. People changed their relationship with the things that were important in their life and reprioritized them. I think it was the smoking study, if I remember correctly, that talked about how patients were able to think about long-term consequences mm -hmm. more than they had been able to in the past. In the past, they thought about, I need to feel that uh, tobacco and then following the use of uh, the psychedelic, uh, in this case psilocybin, 
they were kind of able to say the long-term effects are more important to me. My relationship with this substance has changed. Did you find that right off the top of your hand? It's, it's not like we don't have 700 pieces of paper uh, in front of us at the moment. I'm trying to find it right now. Let's go ahead and, and move forward because I think okay. we, I mean, the, the issue is that their relationship has changed. Um, we've talked about a lot of different things. I think even though your, your outline kind of went a different order and I immediately yeah. destroyed that, it's right? Okay. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of people trying to make the case that this doesn't hurt people. Mm -hmm. These things don't hurt people. And that there's enough evidence that it helps people to keep going forward. That's the way I read the data. What am I missing in that story? Um, what would you add to the story? Well, from my perspective and the way that I was brought up, the way that we approach medicine is that you need to have a respect for it, regardless. Um, um, and for, so these hallucinogenics, um, come from the earth they I mean peyotes from cactus we have um, several of the other um, LSD is an ergot a natural yeah, ergot that's slightly mes modified. Mescaline is from fungi so it as long as there's that respect then it will retain its medicinal property soon as you start abusing it or using it for non-medicinal purposes that's when it will lose its medicinal quality quality and that's from that's from your traditions yes. and your beliefs so what's really fascinating is that also showed up in one of the papers oh yeah <laughs> there's, there's this very interesting comment uh, in one of the articles that I read that said something along the lines of people who showed up so I think this was actually the Bogan shoots article that talked about the protocols for use of psilocybin okay. What they said was that when people show up uh, out of curiosity or to get a high, mm -hmm. this treatment doesn't work. When you have people that are, and I think that was part of the description for those first two visits is to get a sense of the person and whether or not this is a curiosity thing or a treatment thing. Mm -hmm. And when it's a treatment thing, the outcomes seem to be quite different. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm under the impression that your tradition, your beliefs, mm -hmm. has uh, at least uh, been manifest on some level within one of the articles that we read. Yeah. Good. <laughs> it's it's a treatment, it's a medicine, mm -hmm. and when it's not a medicine, when it's a curiosity, when it's a high, it, it doesn't seem to have the yeah. same outcome. Um, the, the one issue that I, I didn't see a lot of attention to other than, it, it felt like, well, everybody knows this, so we stay away from it. Mm -hmm. There does seem to be some risks associated with psychosis. There was, uh, I think, early in the 60s to 70s, in that time period, there was uh, two twins, one who um, had psychosis that developed, who used it, and maybe the twin already had psychosis symptoms. I think they were identical twins, and that gave people some concern that it might uh, flip people into psychosis the rest of the way. Um, I think there's also some data that has continued where you exclude people from these trials who have psychosis, that people who have psychosis may have a persisting psychosis or a tendency to psychosis may have this persisting psychosis effect. Um, and so there's something there. 
that that seems to be present, but it doesn't it doesn't seem like there was a lot written about that. What did you come across regarding psychosis and psychedelics? Well, I think the the time frame that um, if it if it's the article that I'm re um, remembering, um, we have come um, a great deal um, forward from the '60s with try it on everybody. Um, yeah. And, and I think the studies are higher quality. I think there are a number mm -hmm. of people that say, hey, these, right. these are a starting point. They're not the high quality trials we need to design. And even our understanding of um, the human psyche and mental health has come a long way since the, the, the 50s and 60s as well. And so I, um, if, I, if I'm understanding your question correctly, um, I think there's always a risk. Um, and it is especially hard to, even, even with prescribing, um, if you're not aware of or know of any of the underlying issues that may be there. Um, I guess there, I guess just there's always a risk, and you have to weigh the risk against the the benefit. And I don't know if that's answering your question or not. Yes. But um, I was also wondering about specific things that you came across regarding psychedelics and psychosis. Um, but I, like I said, I didn't see a lot in the articles I read through. Mm -hmm. Mostly uh, we don't mix those two. And that could be the reason why they're not mentioned is because they try to screen so heavily so as not to run into that challenge or difficulty. So. Um, because that's never the intent um, with, I mean, you would never want to... Um, propel somebody into um, that situation. Yeah. I think you're also alluding to something else which is have a good history of the patient mm -hmm. before you before you prescribe. What have we not talked about that you would like to comment on? I think um, I guess just to reiterate that um, there is a difference between recreational use and therapeutic use. Um, and that I think we shouldn't be rigid. Um, we should be open to alternative forms of healing. And I, the more that we have in our, in our healing bag, the more that we're able to offer our patients and our clients. And every, everyone is unique. And so what might work for one person may not work for the next. And we need to and that's the art form of medicine and of healing, is that we need to be able to blend different things together um, to help our, our patients, our clients. Mm -hmm. What are the chances you'll use something like this in the future? Let's say that the FDA approves uh, some form of, mm -hmm. I, I look, there's some various dosages that are being studied, mm -hmm. I think. For whatever reason, it was like 25 milligrams per 70 kilograms. Mm -hmm. I, I usually hear milligrams per kilogram, but for whatever reason that was the dosing. Let's suppose that it's approved and uh, you can order, um, make up a name for a drug, uh, Wunderbar from uh, some company, and you have a co-therapist uh, that works with you and you have a clinic, w would you take that pathway? Yes, I would, um, but I would not 
it would not be that I would prescribe it or um, use that with every client. It would be very specific. And, and again, I think that also goes back to with what you said about knowing the patient's history, the client's history. You need to develop that therapeutic relationship with your clients to be able to um, make that analyze and make that evaluate, make that decision. Um, so, if it if it was available, then yes, I would. So I'm going to take a counterpoint and say that you probably won't, unless that's all you do. And here's why: um, the data for um, surgeries, mm-hmm. right? The, Andrew, you're like nodding your head. Tell me what I'm going to say because I think you know. Well, I know at least uh, on my general surgery rotation, uh, it seems to be that um, you find what you're comfortable with and you seem to see more of those patients as you do more of those surgeries. So the general surgeon I was with, for example, he had a great interest in robotic type surgery and so tended to have um, cases where he did robotic surgeries and any patients that came through the door that might not have been exactly fit his normal patient profile were referred to as partners who might have had interest more in what that patient's um, symptoms lied with. You know, the, the, the part I thought you were going to say was that um, hospitals that do a lot of one thing are good at that one thing, right? If you're a tertiary care center or even a quaternary care center, there are some of those around, right, that is used to seeing uh, myocardial infarction after my, myocardial infarction come through and you have everything set up to get those labs drawn to respond immediately with the appropriate treatment, you're better at that. If you do a certain kind of surgery over and over and over, the more of those surgeries you do, the better you are. I'm under the impression that if you're the person doing psychedelic therapy, PAT, psychedelic assisted therapy, that might be the thing that you specialize in and you're referred to for that more often. But it- but then also in those cases, if you do receive, um, have a client that comes into you, that you would, you're not the, you're not going to be able to heal everyone. No, no. And so you would refer out, just like Andrew said, you would right. refer it to somebody that would be better able to help them. Correct. But but I think what I'm saying is, I don't think that this can be something that is a part of a practice. I think it would almost have to be like the practice. Yeah. So this is a like like I'm referring you to an ENT that specializes in addressing enlarged middle turbinates, right? Mm-hmm. You're a specialist, I've tried X, Y, and Z, it never worked, so we're going to refer to you. And the reason why I think it's such a specialized area is it takes an entire, an entire day to do the process, right? So you can only do four of those a week when you, if you're having intakes the other day, right? Some of those patients you'll say yes, some you'll say no. And then you even have to have the, the setup session. So you probably have two intakes in the morning, two follow-ups in the afternoon, something along those lines on, on day one, day two, day three, day four, and day five of the week, you're doing the entire day therapy. And that's two therapists. That's an incredible time investment. So I think to do that, you probably have to focus in on that as a single, as a single treatment strategy that you are the expert in. So I guess in regards to that, I would have to wait and see how things play out. So it's possible so. that you would go down the pathway and become a psychedelic prescriber, mm-hmm. but you're not sure that's where your passion would lie yet. Well, I'm not, yeah, I can't say that for right now, but I, I do have an interest in it and I do have a passion for more 
uh, holistic type medicine. Um, and I was going to say something else, and it just left my mind. <laughs> Sorry about that. Anyway, it, um, just so everybody knows, in all fairness, Layla just worked a 16-hour shift, 16-hour yeah. shift uh, overnight at the state yeah. hospital, and was kind enough to facilitate my schedule by coming in today and doing the podcast. And so uh, every once in a while, sleep might have hit you a little bit, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, that, oh. that moment of fogginess. Um, I did want to add one more thing. So I, we each have our own... Um, we are all unique and so when I when I said that we're not gonna we may not be the healer for everyone um, there are parts of us that we're able to share with our clients and so moving forward like just with my history my my experiences and my perspective um, I would be moving with um, again because I was raised longhouse I have um, which is I guess the the term for just the Native American or indigenous um, perspective on life and um, so I would also be incorporating that um, in you know my sessions with my clients and so um, just my perspective again I if not for everybody, and it's okay. I'm going to be interested so. in 20 years to have you listen to this podcast and then come back and tell me how much of those things grew over time, became stronger beliefs, stronger aspects of, of how you were as a provider, and how many of those things might have, uh, I don't like the word weakened, but changed or faded away and become less of, of that process, because I think it's very interesting. The evolution of Layla. The evolution of Layla. Uh, so... Um, Let's go ahead and, and uh, close it down. I'm interested in final thoughts from all three of you. Thomas, final thoughts. This is a fascinating area of study that's <clears throat> really new and innovative. I guess it's built, built on several thousand years of history, but it's fascinating that we can um, now re revive this, um, these studies to evaluate substance use and other um, diagnostic areas. I'm really interested. To, I was, it was really interesting to hear um, how Layla plans to use this and incorporate her background as a Native American in the treatment of um, substance use disorder. And I, I'm, I'm also curious to find out how you progress with your your use of these therapies. Yeah, I, I definitely think that it's um <clears throat> it's a step in the right direction in medicine first to start going back to some of these misconceptions we might have about substances or about treatment modalities that um, I think so, in some cases we're finding aren't necessarily true and I think there's a lot of um, preconceived notions that we all have about different kinds of treatments or different kinds of patients and it's nice to see some of the, the research coming out and kind of setting the record straight for us. Um, definitely an, an interesting topic and I think something that could be very valuable for certain subsets of patients in the future. Layla. I just um, just want to say thank you for um, all of you for discussing this and listening and um, 
I'm a little bit brain dead right now, so I'm sorry. <laughs> Layla, you put in a ton of work on this podcast. Oh. And uh, not only did I make it a hard time for you to have a podcast, but I also disrupted your flow just a little bit, I think. And I didn't intend to do that. I was hoping to try and set up a situation where you could sort of comment on the things I was throwing out there. But I, but I think it threw you off enough that uh, it wasn't the typical Lola, or Lola, good grief, <laughs> typical Layla that we have here. Okay. I, how many times have I done that now? It's okay. Oh, my heavens. Um, However, um, I think one of the things that, there, there, I have like four or five take-homes. Mm -hmm. One, I'm, I'm intrigued by the overlap between the criteria for the substance use disorders and the criteria for Controlled Substance Act, Substance Act right? A lot of those things seem to have some sort of overlap to me that I hadn't noticed before. I'm intrigued by the idea that um, psychedelic substances are less dangerous than maybe we had assumed. I think I'm somewhat compelled by the data, that is the TEDS data, the Don data, the, uh, what is it, the MF data, or MTF data, uh, the, all of these different data sets suggest that there are not a lot of people dying from these substances. What, what I don't know and what I hope gets filled in over the future is are we missing a segment of society? I mean, are, are people that get uh, addicted to hallucinogens ending up under bridges and homeless? And so a lot of these uh, pathways that we're trying to understand the use of, of psychedelics, are, are we missing those, those data points, right? So, so I think there needs to be some things filled in, but I, I'm, I see that there is a, a greater margin of safety than there is for a lot of other things that are uh, out there. Some of the comparisons, and I thought this was notable, are made between psychedelics and substances that are clearly dangerous, right? Um, I think in today's world, if you can compare yourself to opiates and say we're safer than opiates, I'm not sure that means a lot. But I think they're, all, they're also making the case that, no, it's not just that we're safer than opiates, it's just that if opiates can get it, we definitely should because we're a lot safer, right? Maybe that's true. I think we need to have some randomized controlled trials that tell us how many people develop uh, 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 psychedelic use disorder, hallucinogen use disorder over time. I think that once the genie is out of the bag, so to speak, we're never putting it back in. I don't know that we'll ever get opiates put away again. Maybe we will. Uh, there was progress during, I think, between the 30s and the 70s where we're kind of able to tuck uh, opiates away and then we've had that slow resurgence since then. So may maybe we can put them away if there is a true problem. Um, but I do, I do worry about letting go of something that we did put a lid on. Maybe there was something that people saw that we're forgetting that was present 50 years ago and we want to ignore at this point, right? So, so I do still have some concerns about it. I'm intrigued by the idea of having uh, psychedelic assisted therapy and the way to do that more effectively that really does appear to need two people right that's something I hadn't considered before I was sort of under the impression that maybe you give somebody a, a dose of a psychedelic medication and send them on their way and tell them have a good trip right and uh, maybe it would evolve to that eventually but I'm, I'm not convinced of that I think the idea of having more safety mechanisms in place is probably reasonable the way I read the articles it suggested that having that process in place reduce the number of bad trips even though bad trips are not all bad 
enough are that we want to reduce that harm if we can, right? Mm -hmm. So, so those were uh, some of the take homes. Probably the most interesting take home is I, I'm fully aware of Layla's um, approach to medicine. She is bringing herself into medicine, and she's defining herself as a prescriber that has certain beliefs that guide her prescribing that involve um, traditions and uh, spiritual, kind of a, a spiritual awareness maybe is a reasonable way of saying that. And I'm, I'm intrigued to hear that and it's kind of interesting to hear that overlap between how your beliefs and at least some of the um, reports in the data kind of said you, you can't, the, the, you have to respect the medicine so to speak. I think that's absolutely fascinating. Lastly, I think I'm still at the point I was a couple of years ago when we looked at this. This isn't ready for prime time yet, right? No. Um, this is still in, a, in early phases. I've been this excited before about medications for the treatment of schizophrenia, uh, particularly the, uh, the MGLU-2-3 uh, agonist or agonist? Antagonist or agonist, I don't remember. There was, I think, neurocrine had a molecule that they had that did really well in early trials. And then when you went to randomized control trials with a large number of people, it, it, it uh, I think the phrase is, died an ignominious death. Um, it just absolutely disappeared. And I'd like to see that kind of data. E even though two years ago I think we looked at PTSD, it looks like there's at least uh, one article that, or one randomized control trial that has more patients in it than what we had seen in the past. I think maybe if we were to go back and do the PTSD uh, podcast, we might find that Same. there's more data to support that. Um, and interestingly, at that point, we said there seems to be more data to support substance use disorders, mm -hmm. but we were looking at the data from uh, the 60s and 70s, I think. Uh, we talked about a doctor in Canada who was uh, who treated hundreds and hundreds of people who had alcohol use disorder with uh, LSD. And I came across some reference to, I think, the impact of that physician, where in Saskatchewan the standard of care for many years was uh, psychedelic-assisted therapy. Mm -hmm. so, so, so we were more positive about uh, psychedelic-assisted therapy for substance use disorder at that point and less positive for um, PTSD. Those tables have flipped a little bit. Maybe it's just because I'm not reviewing the data with more of a fine-tooth comb to look at it. But, but again, I'm not ready to recommend this for anybody unless we have used all of the treatments that are already available for alcohol use disorder and, uh, and have used them to fidelity. Um, I think that there might be some differences between the treatments for alcohol use disorder. And in some ways, when we're saying, hey, there's just all sorts of limitations with alcohol use disorder treatment, it might be different to treat somebody with alcohol use disorder with a long-acting injection of naltrexone than it is to give somebody and abuse where maybe the cravings are attenuated somewhat with naltrexone, but all you have with uh, antabuse is uh, directive observed therapy and, mm -hmm. and a lot of loss of control, right? Uh, maybe the silastic, or the implants, not silastic implants, but the implants that are used with uh, suboxone might have uh, better outcomes, with buprenorphine rather, might have better outcomes than simply uh, uh, non 
uh, buprenorphine-assisted therapy, right? So there, there might be some caveats, and when we're talking about the blanket failure of substance use treatment, I think we need to be careful that there might be some strategies that are more effective, and to make sure that we're taking advantage of that before we give up and say, we need compassionate use therapy, let's go to the Caribbean for a one-time use substance, or for one-time ayahuasca use, or one-time uh, psilocybin use, right? So, so I have some thoughts about that. On the other hand, uh, I think if somebody is not getting relief from anything, is terribly uh, distressed by what they're doing, I mean, I think being able to have a conversation about locations that might produce, uh, provide these types of therapies is worth exploring with your patients, right? Mm -hmm. If you're not providing the solution, then help provide uh, access to somebody that is. So I think that's kind of my algorithm still. Um, but again, uh, more and more interest in these in these molecules, and I think I think we're probably going to see, uh, with all of the interest, we're going to find something that these molecules treat. I just don't know what it will be yet. Yeah. So that's my take home. Uh, everybody, thank you for the podcast, Layla. Well done. I know you're not uh, as happy about this as you would like to be. I can see your face. Not everybody can uh, on a podcast, but very well done. And great data collection, great information. And you and I had great conversations about this leading up to the podcast, yes. right? I know I know that uh, sleep did affect you a little bit on this. And I, I think too, this this is my first one. So I this is out of my comfort zone with... Um, talking on a mic. Talking on a mic. <laughs> so... I think I did okay. So. You did amazing. <laughs> Are you going to do another one with me? I would like to, yes. All right, we'll do another one then. So we'll plan on it, okay? Break out a little bit further. I me. love it. Um, what are you going to do it on? Let me think. The effects of sleep on cognition. I probably should. <laughs> <huh? laughs> Guys, let's stop here on that note. Team out. You guys say team out, remember? Team, team out. out. <laughs> <laughs>